As we make our way into the fifth dimension tonight, all of us will become acutely aware that there are fewer days ahead than there are behind. Because together we've explored four seasons and 120 episodes of The Twilight Zone, all through its highs and lows and some diversions along the way. But with that came a punishing schedule. And as we know, despite having some of the best writers in the medium working on The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling had still written 75 of those 120 episodes. But he himself said, By the end I was writing so much that I felt I had begun to lose my perspective on what was good or bad. So in 1963 when CBS renewed The Twilight Zone for a fifth season, the question was could it maintain the quality? Perhaps one advantage going forward was that season 5 was to revert back to the classic Twilight Zone running time. The longer episodes didn't translate to larger viewing figures, and even today those longer running times are a sticking point for some fans. So reverting back to the classic running time was a good idea, but would it be enough? Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion says that season 5 is where the show lost its vitality, and that the quality of the writing slipped badly. But he does go on to say that a Twilight Zone that was a shadow of its former self was still better than anything else out there. Now whether I agree with that statement or not we will see with time, but what is unmistakable is that this is a time of change. As we've taken this journey we've been introduced and met important names along the way. People like the producer Buck Houghton, directors like Buzz Kulik, Douglas Hayes, Alamont Johnson, and so many actors, some of them regulars like Burgess Meredith and Jack Klugman. But it seems at some point we passed a point of no return. And those people who taught us and entertained us and enriched us began to take their bows and leave the fifth dimension for good. So it would be easy to enter this final stretch with a heavy heart and begin to mourn a show that is not yet dead, to focus on those opinions that this is a show whose best days are behind it, and to become weighed down by the fact that my days in the dimension of imagination are numbered too. It would be easy to do that, but not on my watch. Because I face these final days with a renewed excitement, change is inevitable, and we can face this twilight zone winter with sadness, and that soon we'll be saying goodbye to our first broadcasts and our hard-working actors of the day. Or we can face it with gratitude for what we've had, and a resolve that if these are to be our final days, then we'll make them our best days. The place is here, and the time is now and I hope that you'll join me for one last look up into the stars and our final season in the Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. 
You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. When we consider where we ended season four and where we find ourselves now at the beginning of season five, there is a whiplash-inducing tonal shift and we realise we're back in territory that Rod Serling knew very well, the battlefield. But unlike other Twilight Zones, this was not depicting a skirmish from World War II, but actually the still ongoing war in Vietnam. Now my mainly American audience don't need their British host to go into details of that war, and to be honest, which war it is actually has very little to do with the story that this ends up being about. But it is quite significant because Martin Grams Jr. says in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that this is probably the first fictional depiction of American Special Forces in Vietnam. Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion says that this is very likely to be the first mention of an American casualty in Vietnam in a television show. So both commentators qualify their comments with probabilities and likelies, so it seems that neither know this to be the absolute case, but even if it isn't the first, it's certainly one of the first, and another landmark for the Twilight Zone. And we'll soon discover that the casualty that we see is Private Pip Phillips. This the boy from Wong Ho? That's right, sir. We were caught in ambush. Multiple shrapnel abdomen, extensive tissue damage. Well, we can't touch him here, we'll have to send him on back. What are his chances, sir? Not very good, I'm afraid. Phillips, Pip. Pip, that's an odd name. Well, Private Pip, I wish you a long life. Well, short of that, someone to mourn. No, please! So when Pip's father, Max, awakes as if from a nightmare, we are about to be plunged into the nightmare that is his life. A life with only one good thing in it. Ladies and gentlemen, in praise of Pip. Submitted for your approval, one Max Phillips, a slightly the worse for wear maker of book, whose life has been as drab and undistinguished as a bundle of dirty clothes. And though it's very late in his day, he has an errant wish that the rest of his life might be sent out to a laundry, to come back shining and clean. This to be a gift of love to a son named Pip. Mr. Max Phillips, Homo sapiens, who is soon to discover that man is not as wise as he thinks. Said lesson to be learned in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on September 27th, 1963. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Joseph M. Newman. Now, of course, our first comment has to be about the return of Rod Serling in the scene. And I'm so pleased to have him back. You know, it does have a whip pan and my preference is usually something a bit more interactive but after a whole season of being in front of a gray screen i will take this no problems at all and he's certainly enjoying some of his verbal gymnastics here max isn't a bookmaker he's a maker of book 
and he also calls Max a homo sapiens, something which is probably more fitting in a science fiction themed episode where someone is about to shoot into space or meet aliens or something, more than it is for a man in a grubby room like this, but I'm just happy to have him back. And it does seem that Rod is enjoying being back in the thick of it here as well, rather than pre-recording those intros in a studio somewhere. And he even gives us the immortal line, submitted for your approval, for the second of three times in the show's history. So welcome back, Mr. Sailing. But we also welcome back Rod Sailing's great quality of taking from his own writing and repurposing things or fleshing them out. And we saw that recently in the episode The Bard when he took a menial character from his Playhouse 90 episode, The Velvet Alley, and put him front and centre in The Bard. This time, he's taking from an episode of Craft Television Theatre that he wrote called Next of Kin from 1953. Now unfortunately I don't believe that episode exists anymore or I certainly can't find it but I'm going to refer you over to a great Twilight Zone blog called the Twilight Zone Vortex which you can find at twilightzonevortex.blogspot.com and they have exhaustively researched entries on every Twilight Zone episode and they are so exhaustive that I usually don't read their entry on an episode until after I've done my analysis of it because otherwise it would feel just like cheating and I'd be really tempted just to lift the work from their site and I don't want to do that. But they have the best entry on Next of Kin that I can find and when you hear it, you'll clearly see the seeds being sown for In Praise of Pip. So Twilight Zone Vortex write, On April 8th, 1953, Craft Television Theatre presented Next of Kin by Rod Serling. The contemporary drama concerned the conflict of the Korean War and explored the effect of three missing soldiers on their families and friends back home. The story of a missing soldier named Tommy Phillips is told through the perspective of his father Max, an alcoholic bookie who recites oft-repeated promise to his landlady Mrs Feeney. Max promises to clean up, to stop drinking and to leave bookmaking behind in order to spend time with his son once Tommy returns from the war. Max tells Mrs Feeney that he plans to meet Tommy at the boat. His love for his son pushes Max to spare a young man who cannot pay up on a bet. This lands Max in trouble with Moran, the local crime boss, who is less forgiving of such transgressions. It's while visiting Moran that Max receives a telephone call from Mrs. Feeney. A telegram arrived from the army, reporting Tommy missing in action. Max is stunned. He looks out of the window into a carnival where he used to take Tommy. Facing the possibility of never seeing his son again, Max is filled with regret for not being a better father. So there we have it. It's all laid out there. That is the proto in praise of Pip. It's just a real shame that it doesn't seem to exist anymore. Our director tonight is Joseph M. Newman. And as I mentioned earlier, we are at a point in the show where we're saying goodbye to so many pillars of the Twilight Zone, the people who really shaped the show. And tonight especially we're saying goodbye to two giants of the show in Jack Klugman and Bill Moomy. But in the spirit of renewal, we're also meeting a director who is here to pick up the mantle of some of those hardworking directors who have gone before 
and he's about to build up a Twilight Zone portfolio of his own. Now there's not much out there about his personal life, but he was born in Logan, Utah in 1909, so he would have been approaching his mid-50s at this point, and he brought a fair amount of experience with him. He had worked his way into the business with, with some good old-fashioned hard work and paying of dues, starting out as an office boy, then a writer, then assistant director, and making his screen debut with a series of shorts. But then in 1942, he made his first full-length picture, which was called Northwest Rangers, the story of two friends who take different paths in life. One becomes a Canadian Mountie, and the other a professional gambler. But then Newman served his country at the rank of Major in the Second World War, and while he was serving, he made documentaries and newsreels, and some say this was a great influence on his work going forward, because his output from here on in had a grittier, more realistic feel to it, and he would often use unknowns instead of big stars in order to lend his work more authenticity. And I certainly think we can see echoes of that in tonight's episode. But after making the picture Tarzan the Ape Man in 1959, the 1960s saw him moving into television. And unlike a lot of the directors that we meet, he wasn't particularly prolific in television and has 13 credits in the five years that he worked in it. So the Twilight Zone and the four episodes of it he directs in season five are quite literally in the twilight of his career. And the only thing he directed more of was 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents between 1963 and 1965. And 65 was the year that he retired from directing and from what I can see, probably from the business altogether. So I hope that this means his retirement from 1965 until his passing at the age of 96 in 2006 was a happy one. But will he make his mark on the Twilight Zone? Well, the episodes that he directed are In Praise of Pip, The Last Night of the Jockey, Black Leather Jackets, and the very final episode, The Bewitching Pool. So I think we will all definitely have some thoughts on those, but as I've always said, every episode gets a chance on the Twilight Zone podcast, so we shall see. When we meet Max Phillips, he's staying in a kind of boarding house, and I absolutely love the set here. I adore these squalid little rooms with old furniture in and patchy walls with a tiny sink in the corner, and it tells us all we need to know about where Max is in life. You want a cigarette? I got one. Got two. Thank you. Shady Lane lost yesterday. That's the way of the world, Georgie. The rich get richer, and the long shots lose. So what's to do? You said he had a good chance. You told me he ran good on a wet track. I said that? Proving how little I know about horses, huh? What am I going to do? I bet every nickel I had on him. It's funny, George. I can't think of a thing. Big joke, huh? Lots of laughs. Where'd you get the money? Where'd it come from? I got it. From where? From, uh, from where I work. Where you work? A white collar heist, huh? I borrowed it. You borrowed it, you borrowed it. Sure you borrowed it. Without their knowing about it, you borrowed it. All right, Emma. 
So what's to do, Georgie? <laughs> I'll go to jail. I'll make book on that. Poor Georgie Porgy. One of the breed. Johnny-come-lately wisdom grafted onto a second-guesser head. So I ask again, Georgie, what's to do? I really like Rod Serling's use of language here, that exchange at the start of the clip. You want a cigarette? I've got one. You got two? It's almost like a low-level kind of hustle because Max can see that his visitor has a cigarette already, so there's never any chance that Max would have to give one up, but every chance that he would get one. But that's who Max is, always having to hustle. But Klugman speaks Sailing's words so beautifully, and it's actually been a while since he's spoken Rod Sailing dialogue, because so far only his first Twilight Zone, A Passage for Trumpet, was written by Sailing. His second and third episodes were written by George Clayton Johnson and Richard Matheson. So this is really our setup for Max's downfall. Georgie is a younger man who is clearly on the same road as Max, but he also appears to be around the same age as Pip, and this turns out to be very important to the episode, and we'll speak more about that in a moment. So Georgie borrowed some money from his employer to bet on a sure thing that Max told him about, and he placed the bet with Max himself. But in gambling, there's no such thing as a sure thing, and now Georgie can't replace the money that he took from his employer. So what is Max to do? I don't understand you, Maxie. I treat you like a favorite uncle and you double-cross me. He got caught. Kid by the name of George Reynolds placed a bet with you. 300 bucks. The horse doesn't place, and yet somehow the dough never got to me. Why, Maxie? I'll bite. Why? Because he gave it back. That's why. You're welched on me. Then I had to go out, find the kid, and get my dough back. I had to rough him up a little bit because he was stubborn, and that was a lot of trouble. For 300 lousy bucks. Yeah, an awful lot of trouble. So Moran is Max's boss, and Max is confronted by the fact that he didn't pay Moran the $300 that he gave back to Georgie. And then we see that Moran has sent one of his goons after Georgie to rough him up and get the money back. Now initially when he's confronted with this, Max has a kind of, well, we tried, it's your problem now, Georgie kind of attitude about him. But then he gets a call from his landlady who tells him that Pip has been wounded in Vietnam. So just listen how this kind of surrogate son setup evolves because Max looks out for Georgie, but it's still within this skeezy criminal underworld that they're both a part of and it only goes so far. But when he's reminded of his son, this happens. Pip is dying. My kid is dying in a, in a place called South Vietnam. There isn't even supposed to be a war going on there. But my son is dying. It's to laugh. I swear it's to laugh. Hey, Maxwell, hey, kid, I'm sorry. My kid used to love amusement parks, eh? I used to take him on Saturday night. 
Well, you know, it ain't like the kid's dead already, you know. Well, what I mean is that... Uh... I wasn't too drunk. When I wasn't out conning for you, I used to take him to the amusement park. You know something, Moran? I think you're wrong. I think I've given something away. My kid, Pip. The good part of me. The clean part. So this revelation about Pip, that he's in another country and he's possibly going to die, reminds Max of the best part of himself. And while only moments ago he was about to ignore the plight of Georgie, this is the thing that makes him turn around, as if to say, well, he can't do anything about his actual son, but he's not going to let his surrogate son down because he's let his real son down so many times. Now, the comment that he made about South Vietnam and there isn't supposed to be a war on is something that Mark Zickery addresses in The Twilight Zone Companion. Originally, Rod Serling placed the action in Laos, but then this was changed when the DeForest Research Group who went over sailing scripts for inaccuracies said the Geneva Treaty on Neutrality of Laos stipulated that all foreign troops be removed. At present, the only US military in Laos is a small mission in the embassy. There are officially no combat special forces in Laos. The implication that the US has troops fighting in Laos, even in the Twilight Zone, could be an embarrassment and might cause repercussions. U.S. Special Forces are fighting in an advisory capacity in South Vietnam. Suggest South Vietnam. And it goes on to say, in South Vietnam, it is common knowledge that there is a civil war, but U.S. troops are not supposed to be fighting there. Suggest there isn't even supposed to be a war there. So while there is a war in Vietnam, there is also a war in this room. Because when Max, imbued with a new conscience, tries to give Georgie back the $300 so he won't get in trouble, takes a bullet in the gut from Moran's goon for his troubles, in a pretty violent scene for the Twilight Zone, and it's a wound that will mean curtains for Max. So let's meet the man who takes his final curtain tonight in the Twilight Zone. So in his fourth and final Twilight Zone we bid farewell to the great Jack Klugman, after the three episodes that we've already covered, is there anything left to say about the man himself that we haven't already said? In A Passage for Trumpet, A Game of Pool, Death Ship and In Praise of Pip, we have four of the most intense Twilight Zone performances that there are. Klugman is often called an everyman actor, someone we can relate to because he isn't the square-jawed leading man. He always comes across as one of us. But I think in the Twilight Zone there was a definite part of the human experience that he really brought to the fore in his performances. He was a man who showed angst and regret like nobody else. Even when he was the best at something, like in A Passage for Trumpet or A Game of Pool, we could see the cost of what it took him to get there etched across his face. And I think In Praise of Pip is another one of those powerhouse performances and a perfect swan song for one of the Twilight Zone's legends. And I think it's hard sometimes to talk favourites with the Twilight Zone because it can so often depend on our mood. But if you ask me on 9 days out of 10 who my favourite Twilight Zone actor is, 
I'll probably tell you it's Jack Klugman. And while I love him for these angsty, painful performances here, I'm also glad that going forward he chose to have a bit of fun as well. He played Oscar Madison in five seasons of the television comedy The Odd Couple, which is the show that I first remember seeing him in, and he was even a television sleuth for 148 episodes in the hit series Quincy, where he played the crime-solving medical examiner who did more than just the autopsies. But it was almost another Twilight Zone favourite who took this part in in praise of Pip, but I think he probably would have done a good job of it as well. Because this part was first offered to Art Carney, who unfortunately only had that one Twilight Zone. I would have liked to have seen him do more, but maybe not at the expense of Jack Klugman in this one. So let's remember the great man and thank him for his contributions to the Twilight Zone by hearing a few of his own recollections from an interview with Emmy TV legends. Jack Klugman, we salute you. Burgess Meredith and I um, joined the most. We did four each. No one did more than we did. And it was after the Melbourne Alley, of course, I was doing Gypsy. And uh, Rod called me personally and he said, I just wrote a nice half hour script I'd like you to do. I said, what are you talking I'm in a play, Rod, I can't do it. He said, well, you have a vacation in January for two weeks. This only take a week, come on out and have a vacation out here. <clears throat> well, anything Rod said, I said, what's it nice? He said, well, it's a trumpet player. So I said, okay. I'm a good way to, I asked my wife, she said, fine, we'll go out. So I then worked with a trumpet player in the orchestra, Gypsy, who taught me how to finger and did all the things, gave me an old battered, I bought an old battered trum- trumpet. And it was a wonderful experience. Of course, working with Rod was always a wonderful experience. Every word was important. I mean, you didn't change words as you did in other shows when you worked for Rod or worked for Reggie Rose. So uh, that was it. So each year I did another one, and they were all wonderful. I didn't like the owl one, but the other three I liked. I liked the pool. It's my favorite. But it's just a wonderful show it's because he's written such good words. Well, first, he always has power no matter what he's talking about. And also, you love to roll his words around in your mouth. There are some playwrights, uh, for me, all Clifford Odets, I love to roll. They belong in my mouth. I just, they're comfortable. And uh, now Neil Simon, Herb Gardner, they're good for me. I like their words. They're rich. And their thoughts are rich. And there's always something underneath. It's never just what he's talking about. It's always another dimension. And that's what... You know, in a half hour show, you don't usually get it. You look at that game of pool, it's got so much to say. And then we did the one I don't like, which is the airship, which keeps going around, which we do in life all the time, without ever, it ever ending. You know, he, he always had something to say. He was a handsome man. Short. And I think aware of his shortness. Always had a tan. Always had, he wrote at the pool. Whoever wrote it, they didn't type it into a dictator phone. <laughs> he was always smiling, very serious about it. When we did, I'll give you an example. When we did uh, the Velvet Alley, the Playhouse 90, Art Carney and I had a scene. I played an agent. He was uh, a writer, never had success. Now we put his first show on television. And the next morning, we're reading the reviews in a hotel room, and we're in. I'm in my shorts. 
and we're laughing at the reviews. And then during rehearsals, about four or five days in the rehearsal, we the laughter and the joy of these reviews catches up with us, and we're not saying the words. So Frank Schaffner was doing this, and said, I love that, but I don't know how Rod feels about the words. So he called Rod, and he said, Rod, he explained to him, and I said, no, no, those words are very, very important. Because they sat up there, he said, let me come down and see it. And he really wanted those words in, and he came down, and he watched us go through it. And we go, and this is terrific. And the joy of the success and the camaraderie, because I later die because he turns up, all of that, he said, I don't care if I don't understand one word. The emotion that's coming out of that scene is beautiful, and it's what counts. There's a guy willing to sacrifice, I mean, two, three pages of dialogue because he liked what was happening. That's the kind of guy he was. So after making his escape from Moran and his goons, a mortally wounded Max makes his way to the amusement park across the street, a place that he used to take Pip when he was a child. And here, as he approaches the gate, is one of my favourite Twilight Zone shots. The deserted park, the shiny wet floor, the closed attractions and the mist in the air, I think it's absolutely beautiful. And Martin Grams Jr. writes that all of these exterior scenes were filmed on location at Pacific Ocean Park in Santa Monica, California. So a remorseful Max stands at the gates, making one last wish to the universe to give him a chance to make things right with Pip. And as this is going on, Pip is being worked on by surgeons halfway across the world. And the head surgeon seems to think that if Pip can last the hour, then there's a chance that he could make it. And then, perhaps this is just the hallucinations of a dying man, or perhaps it's the twilight zone giving a moment to two people who are at their store to see each other one last time. But whatever it is, Max sees his son Pip again as a child. My boy. Hey, Pop, I've been waiting forever so long. Hey, Pip. Oh, Pip, hey! Pip. Wait, you're ten years old again, Pip. How come you're ten years old again? That's what I am, Pop. I'm ten years old. And it's Saturday night. And you said to meet you on the midway. And I've been waiting. And I was afraid you weren't going to come. But I don't understand. I really don't understand. Sometimes you don't show up, Pop. Sometimes you're, you're sick or something. You remember what I used to say, Pip, remember? I remember. I used to say, hey, Pip, who's your best buddy? Hey, Pop, you're my best buddy. Now, at one point in the episode, one of the doctors who was working on Pip comments on how it's an odd name. And Martin Grams Jr. comments in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that Sailing borrowed this name from Charles Dickens. But I think the true heart of the character comes from Rod Sailing's daughter Anne, as she told me way back in 2013. I know In Praise of Pip was a, a particularly special episode for you. Could you share with us why that one's special? Well, I hadn't actually watched many Twilight Zones while my dad was still alive, and it wasn't until several years after he died that I started to. I think, and I, as, and I wrote about this in the book, I think initially I was doing it more to see my father on television, you know, and connect with him that way. 
Mm-hmm. When I came across the episode in Praise of Pip, you know, watching it, I realized that my dad had used some of the dialogue from a routine that he and I did where he used to say to me, Who, who's your best friend, Pops? And in the show, uh, Jack Clubman says to his son, who's your best buddy? And it was mm-hmm. was so poignant to me that and, and connected me to my dad in a way I hadn't expected. So while Pip and Max make the most of the time that they have in the deserted funfair, let's meet the boy who played Pip. Tonight we also bid farewell to one of the Twilight Zone greats, Bill Moomy, one of those rare actors who lived through this early age of television but was young enough and successful enough to carry on through the decades and different eras of the medium. This is his third and final Twilight Zone, and like his co-star Jack Klugman, there isn't a dud among them, and his first two episodes, Long Distance Call and It's a Good Life, are two of the darkest that the show has ever done. But what I also like is that he did these episodes at an age when you can see him growing up a little bit more each time but he was the perfect fit each time he was cast. And growing up never seemed to stop Moomy's career as it did with so many child actors. A couple of years after this episode, he got that other career-defining part when he played Will Robinson in Lost in Space for 84 episodes. In the 90s, he appeared in Babylon 5 for 108 episodes. And in the 2000s, him, along with his co-star Cloris Leachman, became the only people to appear in the Twilight Zone again, playing the same characters in a sequel episode. And that, of course, is in the 2000s revival and the episode It's Still a Good Life. So again, what's there left to say about Bill Moomy at this point other than to thank him for his time in the Twilight Zone and his continued good words about the show ever since? Because imagine being asked about three half-hour episodes of television that you made as a child for the next 60 years of your life, but then handling it with good grace and enthusiasm like Moomy always does. In the book Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone by Stuart Stanyard, Bill Moomy is asked, what do you think of the original Twilight Zone today when you look back on it? And Moomy says, I think it's the best television series ever produced. It's timeless. I think it's beautiful to watch. I love the cinematography. It's 156 acting lessons right there. They're just beautifully acted, beautifully written, beautifully shot. Great little moral plays within a sci-fi or fantasy arena that was unique and to this day stands alone and has its own thing that no one else can duplicate. If you opened a trunk and found three Twilight Zone scripts that were written by Rod Serling that were never read or produced before, and you had the Simpsons do them, you would still know immediately that it was Rod Serling's work. You would recognize in a very short amount of time that there is a unique way these characters are speaking. There is an intelligence that these characters are speaking. There is a certain thing that was Rod Serling that no one else can do. Rod Serling is the Twilight Zone. I think it's the best show ever made. But unfortunately, there comes a point where this beautiful moment in time between Max and Pip begins to unravel. They've been having a great time at the funfair, but then Pip seems to have a sudden realization about something, like maybe he's not supposed to be there. 
and Max all of a sudden becomes very aware of the gunshot wound in his gut and as Pip heads into the house of mirrors Max follows him a scene that Bill Moomy called real spooky now in the Twilight Zone companion Mark Zickery says that although some of the close-ups were shot in studio most of it was done in the amusement park's actual house of mirrors but there's potentially a difference of reporting here between Zikri and Martin Grimes Jr. because Zikri says that most of it was done in the actual amusement park, whereas Martin Grimes Jr. says that all of the scenes that take place at the Midway, including the interior of the House of Mirrors, were filmed on stage 19 at MGM, and it cost $850 to recreate the House of Mirrors. So Martin Grimes Jr. suggests that the whole House of Mirrors stuff was shot on the stage. You have to understand this. You have to try and listen and understand. Those times when I wasn't around and when I was out conning and being a shell or when I was too drunk and when I dragged you from one rooming house to another. It doesn't make any difference now, Pop. It makes a difference, Pip. It does make a difference because I want you to know that no man... Oh, listen to me, son. No man ever, ever loved a boy any more than I love you. It was because, well, because I dreamed instead of did, you know, and I, I wished and hoped instead of tried. But as God is my witness, Pip, I loved you. See, I wouldn't be able to put it into words because there, there isn't any language, but, but I love you. So when you see these scenes with Jack Klugman and Bill Moomy, Klugman isn't pulling any punches. He isn't making any concessions for Bill Moomy's age. He's going for it with the intensity that he always does. And in Stuart Stanyard's book, Moomy is asked how it was working with Jack Klugman. And Moomy says he was wonderful, a very passionate actor and really into it. First of all, I'm really proud to be part of the first American teleplay that addressed American casualties in Vietnam. It was a bold show, and I salute Rod Serling for writing it. As you know, we filmed a lot of that episode outside, at this old creepy amusement park. Anyway, there was a scene where Jack Klugman grabs Pip and swings him around and kisses him and everything. And you know, look, I'd been working for quite a few years at that point in time with a lot of very talented people, and everybody knew what they were doing. But he was such a gentleman, he came up to both my parents, who were there on location at this pier, and he came up to my mom and dad, introduced himself to my parents and said, look, I just want you to know in this next scene that we're gonna shoot, I'm really gonna kiss your son. I'm gonna really grab him and kiss him and hug him and really go for it. And I wanted to say hello at first and let you know that I'm gonna do that. And they thought that was so sweet of him. It was unnecessary for him to do that, but I always remembered that. But it seems that the realisation that Pip had was that he was dying now. The hour that he got to spend with his old man was now up, and he had to go back. Hey, God. Hey, God. I'll make a deal with you. I give you, I give you the sodden carcass of a, of an aging, weak idiot. 
I give you me. All you have to give back is Pip. Please, God. Don't take my boy. We'll find out in a moment that thankfully Pip makes a recovery after his surgery. So was this because of Max's deal with God, or was it just a coincidence? We'll come back to that in a moment because I think it's only fitting that we give a mention to the other actor who plays the older Pip in this episode. Because by now we are well acquainted with Bill Moomy who plays young Pip, but the older Pip was played by a young man with a name destined for show business, Bobby Diamond, and he was born in 1943. And there isn't a huge amount of information about him out there, but apparently his mother, who he christened as the architect of his career, guided him and his brother into a tap dancing act when they were children, and they would perform at small events like supermarket openings. And from there, his mother got him to work as an extra in movies and he learned the hard way that just because you're in a movie, it doesn't mean you'll be seen in a movie. Because after getting a small part in a movie with Anthony Quinn where he handed the man a newspaper, he said, I told all my friends I was in that movie. What happens? I go to a birthday party where they go to see it. I remind everyone that I'm in it, but all you see is my hand coming up and giving Quinn the paper. Forty kids died of laughter. But it was in 1955 that his big break came when he got the part of John Newton in the Western TV series Fury, which kept him in a job for 116 episodes and five years. And from there, he went on to a role in a comedy show called Westinghouse Playhouse, playing Buddy McGovern for 26 episodes. But this was possibly a crossroads in his career because he had the choice between Westinghouse Playhouse and a show called My Three Sons. Unfortunately, he chose Westinghouse Playhouse, which was cancelled after one season, but My Three Sons was a hit that lasted for 12 years. And ironically, he would get a small one-off part in that show years later. And unfortunately as well, a short time after his television show Fury ended, his mother, who had guided his career, passed away, and things were never quite the same. Now, he did continue to work, but at age 21, he got a close call with a role that might have lifted his fortune somewhat, when he almost got the part of Robin in the 1966 Batman TV show, but he lost out to Bert Ward, who was two years younger than him. But this is not to say that Bobby Diamond didn't make a success of himself. He studied law and started his own practice in 1971. And between that and his other investments, he lived very comfortably indeed. And he said, I like acting, but the insecurity is something else. Every actor friend I've got was seeing a psychiatrist, trying to understand why they're not working regularly. And we only lost Bobby a couple of years ago in 2019 at the age of 75. And even though he only has a small part here, I think it's an important one. We've just seen what Max has gone through for the sake of Pip. So it's important that we like him 
and I think we do. In the few short minutes that we have with him, I think he has a real sincerity and charm about him. He's polite, well-mannered and proud in his soldier's uniform, but he has a sadness under the surface. The boy who thankfully made more of himself than his father did, but still loves his dad, despite his bad life choices. I think in the moments that he has, he does exactly what he needs to do, and he is perfectly cast as an older Bill Moomy. And if you look up pictures of Bobby Diamond from earlier in his career, he does have a real look of Bill Moomy about him. So the two are perfectly cast here. Work the gun, not the jaws. That's what my pop used to say. Hey, Pop, you're my best buddy. You always were. There are so many great things about this episode. Two of the show's most celebrated actors coming together for a final bow that does them both proud. One of whom is the great Jack Klugman, one of the finest actors to ever say Rod Sailing's words. He could truly make them sing. And then there's the wonderful use of location with the amusement park being photographed so beautifully. And I also like that there is a touch of ambiguity. Was young Pip just a hallucination of a dying man? And did older Pip just simply recover from his surgery because he was always going to recover from his surgery? Or did Klugman's final prayer actually get answered? There are a few details to make things interesting. When young Pip realises that it's time to go and says that the hour is up, and he's going to die now, it's echoing what the surgeon said earlier on, that if Pip lasted an hour, he might live. But Max wouldn't know that because he wasn't there when the surgeon said it. And then there is this beautiful shot of Max falling face down onto the floor after trying to make a deal with God. All of the papers blowing past him as if some force, some magic was taking place. Or... Was it just paper blowing in the wind? But all of those things said, in praise of Pip is one of those rare things for me. A top tier Twilight Zone that I probably wouldn't choose to watch on a too regular basis. I like it a lot, but this one stings. Walking distance might show us Martin Sloan, a man who carries a lot of regret with him. A regret that he hasn't made his life more in tune with the carefree world that he used to inhabit as a child, but at least now he has a chance to do that. But with Max, even if he hadn't been shot and killed, his prospect of breaking the cycle of being a low-rent conman and bookie were probably very slim. His was a bleak future, whatever happened to him. If the Twilight Zone was giving him a leg up, it wasn't lifting him out of the gutter and giving him a fresh shot at life. It was given him one last shot at redemption. Pip was going to die. But Max's last gasps of life taken from him and given to Pip were just enough to take Pip past that critical hour-long mark. So like I said, this is top-tier Twilight Zone for me. So despite that famous Twilight Zone commentator saying that this was the season where the Twilight Zone lost its vitality and quality of writing, it's actually gifted us one of its strongest season openers yet. 
Very little comment here, save for this small aside, that the ties of flesh are deep and strong, that the capacity to love is a vital, rich, and all-consuming function of the human animal, and that you can find nobility and sacrifice and love wherever you may seek it out, down the block, in the heart, or in the twilight zone. So, a new year, a new episode of The Twilight Zone. And before we go on, I do like to check in with the members of the After Hours Club to see what their thoughts are um, about the episode that uh, we're talking about. So, in praise of Pip, I asked them whether it was top, mid, or bottom tier. 68% said it was top tier. 26% said mid tier. And 5% said it was bottom tier. My friend Uncommon NASA says it's the best episode one of the five seasons by a decent margin. Uh, Mark Davitt said, although it's not his favourite Klugman episode, his presence along with Moomies puts it into the top tier. And that seems to be a bit of a theme here that um, some people don't actually think the episode is top tier, but they think it's Klugman and Moomy that really send it over the edge. Al Scherzman agrees that it's a top tier. And Jay Warmack says, who doesn't love a story where the protagonist gets a second chance to fix their parenting mistakes? Of course, the second chance is a familiar sailing trope, but I never tire of it. Maxwell says, people rightly heap praise on a game of pool as the standout of Klugman's In the Twilight Zone, but I've always been just as, if not more, fond of Trumpet and Pip for the sheer amount of emotional depth he shows in each. He's just utterly heartbreaking. I think Pip's an under-the-radar top-tier Twilight Zone, not as well-remembered as the others, but just as great. I agree with you there, Max. Michael Fernback says Jack Klugman could make a bottom-tier script a top-tier episode. Luckily, the four episodes he was in also happened to be great episodes, in my opinion. Top-tier. And then Tim Stratford says top-tier due to the excellent performances from Klugman. He was born to act out sailing scripts. Feels like a mid-tier episode, with most other actors. Chad says top tier all the way, Klugman and Moomy in a cathartic sailing script that ends in a carnival. This is perfect. And then Killian says the story is mid-tier stuff, but the direction and Jack Klugman especially elevates the episode to top tier status. So thank you everyone for chiming in on that. So we have our first season five episode out of the way and in a sense, we are really now at the beginning of the end, but you know me, it won't be quick. I would like to say that I'd have this thing wrapped up in two years, but it's probably more likely going to be three. But what do I have planned going forward? I think it's more or less going to be business as usual. I will probably deviate from the regular episodes less as we stride towards the finish line. And I won't be chasing interviews as such, but I think that's been the case for a while now because when you've had the likes of Anne Sailing and Earl Holliman on the show, you know, I feel like I've really achieved with this podcast more than I ever thought I would. But that said, if a good opportunity is in front of me, then I'm not going to turn it down. But it does need to be someone of a certain stature, I think. You know, if Bill Moomy was available, then something like that I certainly wouldn't turn down. And now that the new Twilight Zone is finished, there's probably not going to be anything to come out that will deviate us from our course either. There's no books coming out that I've noticed, and if there was, again, 
it would probably need to be something pretty interesting or unique to make me want to look into it. Now there are some deep dives that I would like to do on upcoming episodes and I would like to redo some of the short story readings that I did from early on in the podcast before I really hone that skill. Things like time enough at last and what you need I think I will redo. And honestly there is always a part of me that is this close from redoing all of the podcast episodes from definitely season one maybe season two as well because i think i would do them so much better now than i did then and they're a tough listen for me now but i think you know in life we need to keep moving forward we just can't keep going back and rewriting our past all the time i think there's probably a twilight zone episode in there somewhere so yeah for the most part i think it will be smooth sailing until the end and i'll do my best to get the episodes out as regularly as possible but as always i make no promises on that but one thing that i have changed is i uh, i was going to stop having a twilight zone podcast website because now we're near the end um i was just putting the files on a a service a, a kind of service that holds them there and um, then they could stay there when the podcast ends but I had a bit of spare time recently and I actually thought you know what it's nice to have a website that people can find the podcast on so I have made a new version of the twilightzonepodcast.com it's with a it's with a way of working that I can um, I can make alterations to it if I want to if I want to branch out a bit and you know do blog entries or book reviews or or things like that it's all there I'm not saying I will but it's certainly all there on the website if I want to so the twilightzonepodcast.com has had a bit of a revamp it's not all finished yet not all the episodes are on there yet and there's a few links to put in place but uh, it's a work in progress but there it is so here in season five i would like to uh, welcome some new members of the after hours club i'm probably going to cross over a bit here because i'm not quite sure where i got up to last time but i want to thank lucas dosia for joining thank you uh, I want to thank Roger Moore, and he says not the Roger Moore, but Roger Moore. Uh, Jeff Clayton, thank you for joining. David Moxon, appreciate you joining as well. And Trevor Douglas, thank you. Then we have Tim Scrace, thanks for joining Tim. Uh, George Stevens, welcome. And then Maxwell Jabis, I hope I've said your name right. Thank you so much for joining. And Bert Liso, thank you as well. And then a couple more, we have... Andrew Douglas Falch, thank you Andrew, and also uh, we have Meg, Meg thank you for joining the After Hours Club. And new iTunes reviews, again I can't remember where I uh, left off last time so I'll just thank the following people, Wilbur Hatch, Sierra Hotel Whiskey, Chris Phantom, uh, Dinky Dumbles and Sunnyside UO James, thank you so much for your kind iTunes reviews. So that is our show. Let's play out though with some thoughts from you, the listeners. First up, we have friend of the show, Kieran West, with some thoughts on In Praise of Pip. And then the moment you've all been waiting for, Harold Clark, our stats man, gives us the rundown of your most popular episode of season four of The Twilight Zone. Okay, so take it away. Hi Tom, Kieran here from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. 
I just wanted to offer some reflections on the first episode of season five. Um, In Praise of Pip has always been a favorite of mine, um, but it's recently become even more special to me because on December 21st this year, I became a father. Um, this, uh, this was the first time I watched Twilight Zone with my son in my arms, and it was, uh, an incredible experience. Um, this episode to me has always been kind of classic Serling. It's got this beautiful dialogue. Um, it depicts this sort of believable, real situation with this hint of, fantasy that really encapsulates this kind of incredibly human experience um jack klugman i know that a lot of people will say that you know like a game of pool is is his best but i have always thought that this one is his best performance and it's really helped by the fact that he's got such great chemistry with bill moomy but the character that serling wrote is this incredibly relatable flawed man who you know despite his flaws just wants to be the best possible father to his child and Jack Klugman was the perfect person to play this role um and the character is 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 like I said so relatable like I didn't realize until very recently that you know how easy it is to just want to give your entire life to this 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 other person this child of yours and 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 that's what he does right he he gives his life for his child depending on how you uh, interpret the episode i suppose but you know in my interpretation has always been that he sacrifices his life in exchange for his child's life and it's just this beautiful depiction of um the love that a father can have for their child and I'm very, very grateful to uh, be able to watch it with my kid now. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it and everyone else. So uh, I hope you're well. Bye. Hey there, Tom. Harold Clark reporting in from Buda, Texas, talking about season four episode rankings. So I'd like to thank everybody who sent in their rankings. Um, we had 14 people total. Uh, given the rankings either through uh, the podcast, uh, through email, uh, Telegram app, Carrier Pigeon, you know, however I could get the information, uh, I tried to get it. Uh, we had nine people who gave rankings for all 18 episodes, and we also had five people that gave rankings for either their top or their bottom uh, five episodes. Um, for those that included just the top at top and, and or bottom five, um, those scores when added with everybody else's didn't change the order of the, of the very top of the list or the very bottom of the list. It, it would have changed a couple of the episodes kind of in the middle. Um, but, uh, but overall, everybody was um, in, in, in the same accord. However, I needed to use some Mr. Dingle level uh, mathery and arithmeticals uh, to try and come up with a proper ranking of all 18 episodes. Um, so what I did in that case was I had to take just the, the nine people that included all all the rankings for all 18 episodes 
and use that as the uh, metric to determine what was the best and what was the worst. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the episodes that had the uh, biggest disagreement in rankings, biggest deviation, and then the episodes that were the most uh, agreed upon as far as rankings. So uh, as far as the most divisive rankings, the third most divisive episode was Just Bell. It, uh, it had a ranking of five. It also had another ranking of nine, but then it also had a ranking of 17, and it had one 18 ranking. Uh, second most divisive episode was In His Image. Uh, it had a number two ranking. It had uh, three number four rankings, <clears throat> but it also had a number 14 ranking and a number 16 ranking. <clears throat> and the, more, uh, the, the widest spread, most divisive episode uh, was Mute. Uh, it had a top ranking of three, also had a ranking of six, but it also had two number 18 rankings. Does that make it the worst episode overall? We will see. <clears throat> so now, most agreed upon episodes. Uh, number three was The Parallel. It had a top ranking of seven, also had a ranking of eight by two people, uh, and then it had a ranking of 13 and 14. Uh, so that's a very, you know, relatively tight uh, group there. Well in the middle. It's a, it's a middle-of-the-road episode. Uh, coming in at the second most agreed-upon episode uh, was The Bard. <clears throat> it had a top ranking of 12. Somebody else also ranked it at 13. Uh, but it had three 18 rankings. Uh, does that make it the worst episode overall? We will see. And the most agreed upon episode was the new exhibit. It had three number one rankings, and it also had three number five rankings. So as you can see, that's uh, six of the of the nine scores were ones and fives. So uh, generally speaking, we agreed that that's pretty much where it needed to be, somewhere between one and five. <clears throat> so let me now restart my my fantastical data provided by the Whipple database. And uh, let's get into the rankings uh, proper. So uh, we had nine people give their 18 uh, episode rankings. So if an episode got all 18s by all nine people, that would be a total score of 162. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go in reverse order here. So coming in at number 18 with a total score of 147. So this, uh, this episode had two 18 rankings, four 17 rankings, uh, a 14 ranking, uh, and then its best ranking was number 11, is uh, I Dream of Genie as the worst episode overall. Uh, and then coming in very close to that with a total score of 143, uh, it also had three uh, 18 rankings. Uh, was the Bard. Uh, and then we have a big jump from 143 all the way down to 117. So it's a difference of 26. So a marked uh, improvement, I guess you could say. Uh, this episode did not have any uh, 18 rankings, and it was The Incredible World of Horace Ford. Uh, um, 
coming in. Uh, the next couple of episodes are all very close uh, together. Um, coming in at number 15 is Jezebel. Uh, it had one uh, number 18 ranking. And then coming in at number 14 is Mute. And it, again, had uh, two number 18 rankings. Um, and then coming in at number 13 is the 30 Fathom Grave. Coming in at number 12 is Passage on the Lady Anne with 106 total points. And then we get uh, a jump down to 95, uh, so a jump of 11 points. And we actually have a tie uh, at uh, 10 and 11. Uh, coming in at number 11 uh, is No Time Like the Past. Coming in at number 10 is of late, I think, of Cliffordville. Even though these two episodes tied, I put uh, Cliffordville ahead because there was more agreement on where that ranking is. There wasn't as big of a deviation like there was with No Time Like the Past. <clears throat> and then uh, coming in with 89 total points is The Parallel. Again, smack dab right in the middle, uh, which is what the, the, the uh, 7, 8, 8, and 13, 14 ranking showed. Then we have a jump of 16 points. So, so again, another, another level of episodes uh, coming in at number 8 with a total score of 73 is uh, Valley of the Shadow. Uh, it actually had one number one ranking vote. Um, coming in at 69 total points is Miniature. Coming in at 67 total points is In His Image. Coming in at number five with 59 total points is The Printer's Devil. Coming in at number four with 54 total points is Death Ship. Then we have a big jump of 13 points all the way down to 41 total points. Uh, this episode had one number one vote uh, and coming in at number three, it's He's Alive. And then we have another big jump from 41 all the way down to 26. Uh, this episode had three number ones. It also had three number fives. And coming in at number two is the new exhibit. And coming in at number one with four number one votes, three number two votes, a number five vote, and a number eight vote. With a total score of 23 is on Thursday we leave for home. So uh, well-deserved uh, episode there. One of my favorites. Um, obviously, the lowest score it got on the whole board was eight. So that's got to say something about that. So, uh, so there you go. There's the definitive rankings for all of time and history. Uh, you can go tell your friends at the bar, the library, about these rankings, and if they have no idea what you're talking about, if they had, didn't even realize that Twilight Zone had hour-long episodes, well, you tell them what's up. And, uh, you know, tell them, you know, go find it on DVDs or, uh, you know, digital downloads or whatever they can get and say, hey, you know, this Twilight Zone, you know, it's not for everybody, these hour-long episodes, but season four has, in my words, some absolute gems. So... So there you go. So again, episodes, we're looking forward to season five. Again, we'll uh, 
Interesting to hear what people's thoughts are on that. There's there are some certainly some iconic episodes in season five. Uh, some of my favorites, my favorite episodes in season five. So we will get to that very soon. And um, again, just look forward to hearing everybody's thoughts. And again, Tom, thanks for your time and putting all these episodes together. And we will talk at you later. Bye. Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email a clip of about five minutes or less to Tom at the Twilight Zone Podcast.com and you might get your clip featured on the Twilight Zone Podcast. So let's go over to Rod Sailing to find out what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, we dabble into the manly arts with a show called Steel, written especially for us by Richard Matheson. This one isn't just for prize-fighting buffs, because the story is above and beyond anything remotely involving the Marcus of Queensbury. Rather, it's a tender, touching, and tough analysis of some very bizarre people. Lee Marvin and Joe Mantell take a walk in the Twilight Zone, next in Steel. (laughs) 